Welcome to Faith Seeking Understanding. My name is John Green. I'm the host. And today it's the 26th day of July in the year 2020. The weird, weird year 2020. The one that's never going to end. <clears throat> had a nice hike this morning. It was a nice morning. So it was good. We've had a good day so far. It's hopefully going to get a little bit of rain. This afternoon, so we don't have to get out and water the garden. We're picking beans and collard greens, and we're going to pick some kale. We've picked um, some other things as well. So we're starting to get some figs. We're going to have thousands of figs, and I'm telling you, there's not much you can do with figs. So if you are listening and you live in Asheville and you want me to give you some figs, let me know. I'll hook you up. Anyway, so here we go. We're we're getting towards the end of July. This will be the last podcast for July, actually. I'm going to start another podcast soon in August, as soon as I get a chance to do a little more work and preparation for it. And it's going to just start with Abraham, and it's going to go through Genesis. And I'm going to look at it from a lot of Jewish sources and, and see what we can find there, and, and there's a reason for doing that. It's not just because I think it's interesting. It's also because it relates back to the gospel. And so what I want to do is, is kind of pick apart some things and show you how Genesis actually, I mean, as it should, sets the table for everything else. Genesis would mean that. But it, it gives us a pattern for Jewish life, but then it also sets the stage for what will come later. There are traces and evidences and and haunting echoes that point towards Jesus in the end. But there's a lot of Israel's history can be recapitulation of the events of Genesis. Um, for instance, with the Jacob story that we're in the midst of right now, we have a couple more weeks of Jacob, and then we start moving forward from there. But uh, I realized that, you know, what's the pattern for Jacob's life so far, right? He commits sin against his brother and against his father, and then he's got to leave. He's got to go. He's got to be exiled from his homeland because of his sin, and he's got to go, and he's got to go somewhere else, and he's got to deal with it, and he's got to be mistreated while he's there. And then but God has promised him all along that he'll come back. He's in exile for a long time. He's exiled for 20 years. And then he can sort of come back to his homeland. And then it's a bittersweet coming back because there's sin in the family. And so 400 years has to elapse then before his family, Israel, will come back and will settle in the land. And that's the pattern for Israel's settlement in the land too, is that because of sin, God will exile them from the land and they'll serve harsh taskmasters other places and then they can come back to the land. And so it's a pattern for Jewish life. I believe it might be a pattern for Christian life. I think it might be a pattern for the church as well. I think there's more to it than that, although Jesus, as the atonement for sin, once and for all, breaks that pattern for us so long as we let him, so long as we do the work of repentance, confession, being the first work of repentance, and then the actual turning away from that sin, not continuing it, being the real work of repentance. So anyway, so I'm going to start that next month, 
and that'll be on a different channel. I'll let you know more about that later on. I want to keep the two things separate, and I have no reasons for wanting to do that. I may try and do some of this on video for the Abraham, Jacob, Joseph, all that series. We'll see. So anyway, so let's get started for today. So what we have today is what I believe is, I'm going to start with the collect, the prayer for the day, because I believe it's one of the finest prayers that have ever been written. And it's this, O oh God, the protector of all that trust in you, without whom nothing is strong, nothing is holy. Increase and multiply on us thy mercy, that you being our ruler and guide, we may so pass through things temporal that we finally lose not the things eternal. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. And so we, the, the prayer is to ask God, give us your mercy, be our ruler and our guide so that we can pass through things temporal, things of earth, and that we, in such a way that we finally lose not the things eternal. That's important. That is a great prayer. Because it takes seriously the life that we're living. But it also points to the future and says, I don't want to so much enjoy this and get so much caught up in all this that I lose the heavenly prize. I want to keep the main thing the main thing. And i got to decide what the main thing is. So how do we do that? We ask the Spirit to give us a right value system. The Psalm 37.4, for instance, tells us that it asks God to give us the desires of our heart. And what it doesn't mean is give us everything we want. No, that Psalm takes very seriously the fact that the desires that are in our heart are disordered. Therefore, the things we see, that's what it is. David says, delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Delight yourself in the Lord is the most important part. If you delight in the Lord, if he is your supreme joy, the thing that you value more than everything else, the desires of your heart are different. That's the honest truth. The, the way to do that is to worship. To worship Him always. To worship when you read the Bible. Thank Him for the ability to understand and apply what you read. Thank Him that He has made Himself known. Thankful that He's given us His Word written. Thank Him that He's given us His Son. So when you read, it should be to understand and to worship. And what you worship is what you want to know better and more. You will want desperately to know more. If you ever doubt that, have you ever been in love? Because if you've been in love, then you know what I'm talking about. Because when, when you fall in love with somebody, then you want to know everything about them. They're the most fascinating thing you could ever imagine in the world. You want to know 
every single thing about them. It's that kind of love that I'm talking about that we need so that we can delight ourselves in him. And then he'll give you the desires of your heart, which David means by that is, is that he'll plant those desires in your heart. And because he has planted those desires in your heart, he will fulfill those things. So that's the way to think about that. And so in our gospel lesson today, Jesus gives multiple parables in this one. And all of them start this way. The kingdom of heaven is like. First, it's a grain of mustard seed, which a man sows in the field. Because here we go again with sowing sort of things. It's the smallest of all seeds, but when it's grown, it's larger than all the garden plants. It becomes a tree, so the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. And then the next parable, the kingdom of heaven is like leaven. That a woman took and hid in three measures of the flour until all the flour was leavened. This little bit of stuff. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells everything that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net thrown into the sea that gathered fish of every kind. And when it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. And in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So Jesus, again, goes back to this, this last one. So he starts with the sowing again that we've already seen three weeks in a row now. And then he begins to tell us that, that the kingdom of heaven is something of infinite value. There's nothing that can be compared to it. If you understood that, he says, you would give away everything you have in order to get the kingdom of heaven. And then ultimately he returns to this motif of judgment that he talks about multiple times over the last several weeks. And, and judgment's real, brothers and sisters. This is not, not Christians reading things back in to the Bible later on, Jesus speaks of judgment as a real thing. And there are some who will be in and some who will not. And in that place where they're not is weeping and gnashing teeth. We may not like that. We may have the fond dream of universal salvation, but Jesus never gives us the ability to believe that. Evangelism is important. And where it's really important is if you look around and you talk to people, what you find out sooner rather than later is just that they have no value for the kingdom of heaven. Even many people who call themselves Christians or consider themselves Christians have little value for the kingdom of heaven. They don't worship. They don't go to church. They don't read their Bible. They don't have a lifestyle that has room for the kingdom of heaven. And if your lifestyle doesn't have room for the kingdom of heaven, then you have no value for the kingdom of heaven. It's imperative that we tell the truth about judgments. And that truth is what Jesus had to say about judgment. That it's real. That it's coming. And at the end, again, he does the same thing he did last week. Remember when we talked about the wheat and weeds? And he said that he would send the harvesters at the end. And then he defined the harvesters as the angels. Here he does the same thing. He says that the angels 
will come and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. It's the same exact thing he said in the parable of the wheat and the weeds. And if he told it twice, he meant it. He meant it that way. And at the end of it, he says, do you understand? They said to him, yep. It matters. Anything Jesus teaches twice in a parable in a very short period of time, you know that he's emphasizing it. He wants to make sure. And then at the end, he says, have you understood these things? Did you get it? Did you understand what I just told you? Yep. Yep, we did. It's important that we understand that. It's important that we understand and value the kingdom of heaven. And if we're not valuing it enough in our lives at the moment, we're distracted. And it's not the main thing. Wake up. Wake up. Stop being distracted. Get back to where you were at the beginning is the way the church in Ephesus is addressed. You've done great things, but this I have against you. You've forgotten the love that you had at the first. Return to that love. Have you forgotten your first love? If so, be honest about that. Pray. Change. Change what's the main thing in your life. Identify what it is. And then change it. Go back to the love you had at the first. That's the call. And Paul in our Romans 8, 26-39 lesson, man, oh man, there's a lot of stuff in there. It's hard to preach these sermons when you've got Romans. You've got 14 verses of Romans, and man, it's hard to preach and not stop for several hours and just spend the time on the Romans passage. So instead of me doing it, I'm going to point you in the direction you should go for the greatest teaching on Romans you're ever going to find anywhere. It's Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great Welsh doctor who became a pastor and who preached in London for many, many years. He had a class that he taught in the evenings on, I think it was on Wednesday night, I can't remember for certain, but he taught just in the evening and he would teach for about an hour. And he taught through the book of Romans. And it's the richest teaching you'll ever listen to in your life. Go to mlljtrust.com, I believe, and you'll find these incredible teachings on Romans. They're completely free, and you can listen to them whenever you want. You can download them. You can, you can access them anytime you like. It's, ML, it's not just it's one L. It's mljtrust.org. And not only is the stuff on Romans there, so is a remarkable amount of other teaching. Things that, that just are, it, it's mind-blowing what Dr. Lloyd-Jones did. I can't recommend that site, MLJ. So Martin Luther Jones Trust.org. I can't recommend it highly enough. Martin Lloyd-Jones was one of the greatest teachers of the 20th century. Go, listen. There's huge volume of resources there. Go and listen to his work on Romans particularly. There's nothing better, no better resource on Romans as far as I'm concerned. So anyway, 
So to point you in the right direction, which is the most important thing I can do. So then we've got to at least look at this passage, but it's so rich that it's unbelievable. There's so much information there, but then there's so much that we have to deal with, and we can't deal with it all right now. So here's what he says. He says, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we don't know what to pray for as we ought. Which goes back to the passage I was talking about from Psalm 37.4, delight yourself in the Lord, he'll give you the desires of your heart. Paul says that. We don't know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what's the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. That's Psalm 37.4. And then we get deep. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. So if you're following your call and you love God, then all things work together for good. You may not always have a perception that it's good. It may not always feel pleasant. But good is a key term in God's economy, there's one person who is the final arbiter of good, and that's God. We make judgments based on our fallen nature about what's good. But good is something Joseph says to his brothers. What you meant for evil, God meant for good, which included Joseph being in prison for a season of time. But he saw God working in all these things. And so in spite of the fact that it didn't feel good to him at the time, ultimately it was for good. Good means it is according to God's will. Things are exactly the way they're supposed to be. And because we live in a fallen world, getting to good sometimes is the most difficult part. Because we live in a sinful, busted, and broken world, so... The means of getting us there, because we're sinful, busted, and broken people, is often circuitous and painful. But Paul says, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. And, and if you thought, well, Paul's life was an upward journey, read Acts one more time. Read 2 Corinthians 11, where Paul recounts all that happened in his ministry. So then he goes on to say, for those whom he foreknew, so he knew in advance, he, he saw everything in advance, God has perfect knowledge, He, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. So God's got a plan for your life, and that plan will be fulfilled. That's what predestination means in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers brothers are the ones who are conformed to the image of Christ and those whom he predestined he says he also called and those whom he called he also justified and those whom he justified he also glorified and then Paul goes on to say what shall we say of these things if God's for us who can be against us he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? 
who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Doesn't matter what your charge is. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who is the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? So tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword. You might also add riches, comforts. Because those things separate us. And then he says, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. And he says, no. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, angels nor rulers, things present, things to come, powers, height, depth, anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's the perseverance of the saints. That those who are foreknown, were predestined, we were called, we were justified, we were glorified, and then once that's all true, nothing will separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's the perseverance of the saints. That's a lot of stuff to cover in a really short period of time. That's the reason I'm pointing to mljtrust.org. It's worth a listen. I'm absolutely serious. There's nothing better. And Romans is the greatest book of theology ever written. Easiest way to say it. So all those things that, that if we do indeed do have, have the value system that Jesus says we're supposed to have, that there's nothing of higher value in our lives for our lives than the kingdom of heaven. And Paul says, if you're in that place, then you will persevere to the end no matter what. No matter what life throws at you, if you persevere in the call, if you believe, like Paul believed, that all things... All things, good, bad, indifferent, according to us, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Paul did that in spite of the fact that, remember, the man died in prison. He was beaten. He was stoned. He was bitten by snakes. He was in a, a storm at sea where everyone was going to perish. And God saved all of them because of the prayers of Paul and because of Paul. All of heaven, all of earth was arrayed against Paul. He came against the religious rulers. He came against the secular rulers. He came against the powers of hell. When you talk about things like shipwrecks, Satan threw everything he had at Paul. And Paul persevered because he did exactly what he wrote. He kept one thing in mind, and he persevered, and he kept his eyes on the prize, as he said again and again and again. Look at Jacob real quickly. That story, this story is, remember last week he had this great experience of the ladder going into heaven. Well, now he's meeting more than his match. He's meeting his uncle Laban his mother's brother. And he's working for him because he's in love with his daughter, Rachel. And so Laban says, hey, you can't work for me for free. What do you want? And so 
it says, Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance, and Jacob loved Rachel. And that, he didn't love Leah. He loved the younger one. And he said, I'll serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. That's a lot of love. He's willing to work for seven years to get this woman to be his wife. Laban said, sure. Better I give her to you than that I should give her to some other man. Your kinsman, at least. Stay with me. And then Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love that he had for her. Kept his eyes on the prize. He knew, he knew what he wanted. He knew exactly what the thing of highest value was. He was willing to give seven years of his life for this woman. And to him, it seemed like nothing more than a few days. What a romantic, wonderful notion that is. And so then at the end of that, he says... To Laban, give me my wife that I may go into her for my time is completed. I've done all the work that I have to do. Now give her to me and let's have a wedding. So Laban gathered together all the people of that place and made a feast. I mean, it's a big wedding. Big deal here. In the evening, after the festivities, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob. And he went into her. And in the morning, light of day, you're not Rachel. You're Leah. What happened? So then he goes and confronts Laban. What is it you've done to me? Didn't I serve you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Oh. You're learning about deception and the price of deception. It hurts when you're on the other end of that, doesn't it? When you're taking your birthright from your brother and when you're taking his blessing and you're deceiving your father and he justifies the means. Well, feels a little different when it's headed your way. And Laban says, it's not done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week of this one. You know what I mean? My week is seven years. And we'll give you the other also in return for serving me another seven years. And Jacob did so and completed her week. And then Laban gave him his daughter, Rachel, to be his wife. What kind of person makes a promise that if you work seven years for me, I'll give you my daughter. But lies for seven years. He knew when he said it the first time what he was going to do. He sat on this for seven years and let Jacob do this. And then Leah played along. But Leah's not the only one who played along, is she? I'll bet you that after Jacob spoke to Laban, confronted him about this thing, he probably had a conversation with Rachel, too. Did you know this? How long have you known this? Were you part of the plot? Were you part of the plan? Now, Rachel might have been horribly disappointed in the way this turned out, but she had to have known. At least at the last minute, she had to have known. When we do that Abraham series, I'm going to talk more about the way that the, the Jewish rabbis understand that and play that out. There's a lot going on here. This is dysfunction at a really high level. It's the same kind of dysfunction that Rebecca actually brought into that family. Now it's going to be magnified by this. And 
now we've got a huge dilemma because God had promised him, I'll be with you wherever you go and whatever you do, and I'll bring you back to this place. It's going to be a while. Settle in, Jacob. You're seven years further from going back to that place. He wanted Rachel. He loved Rachel enough that he stayed. He worked another seven years to get her. And then he worked another six years to gain his fortune before he went back. But go back, he did. He went back to the place God had shown him. He got lost along the way. He lost his way. He got so caught up in his love for Rachel that it took him a long time to come back to the promise God had given him. I believe that was God's will. I believe that, that Jacob needed to learn something about the value of being a man of honor. He needed to understand the price of deception, the price of his own sin. He had to bear it in his flesh before he could come back and be a patriarch. A lot of work had to be done in Jacob's life. When he got back, there was still a lot of work to be done in Jacob's life. We'll talk about some of that next week. The point is for us, no matter what it looks like, no matter how long it takes, how to bring us back. It's a lot quicker if we're willing. If we're willing to accept the fact that we've gotten lost along the way, we've lost our first love. We need to be able to hear that. We need to be able to own it. We need to be able to admit it. We need to be able to change and say, Lord, I lost my way. But I know who you are. And I know that truly your kingdom is all that really matters. Because your kingdom is eternal. Help me pass through these temporal things in order that I lose not the things eternal. And that requires repentance. It requires turning around. It requires reorienting our life. Making that our highest prize. And once we're able to do that, then we're back on the path. And because of Jesus, because of his love, because of his perseverance on the cross in going the distance, we have forgiveness. That mercy that we pray for is available to us. And once again, we can know what our heart truly desires, not at a shallow, temporal, earthly level, but at the level of the created, in the image of, beloved child of God. And we can know that he wants only the best for us. And we can reorient our lives towards that. It'll change our prayers. It'll change our lives. If we allow him to reorient us in that way. It's not condemnation. It's conviction. The first work of the Holy Spirit is conviction. We need, the church in America needs, to be convicted that we've lost our first love. We pursued all manner of other things. 
and the church has taught Christians to pursue all manner of other things as well. It's time to turn that around. It's time for the church to remember who she is and whose she is. It's time to reorient ourselves back to the high calling that we've been given. It starts with us, the Christians. It starts in the pews, not outside. Revival always starts in the pews when Christians get set on fire. And then the world begins to notice. It's time, church. It's time for us to return to our first love. You've been listening to Faith Seeking Understanding. I appreciate you being with me on the journey. Look forward to being back with you next week. And we're going to talk about one of the strangest events in the whole Old Testament. It's when Jacob wrestles with an angel before he goes to meet with his brother Esau. We're going to spend a little time talking about that next week, and so I look forward to being with you. Thanks for being here today. God bless your week.